As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. I don't want any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Fifty years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. stood at the Lincoln Memorial and told the world he had a dream. Then singers and songwriters spread the word. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. Today we look back at the music of the civil rights era, songs of power and protest. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Okay, now he was close, tried to domesticate you, but you're an animal. Baby, it's in your nature, just let me Hey, 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 Mr. Cott. That is the song of the summer, Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines, which we both like quite a bit, and which both of us, I think, would agree sounds a little bit like the great Marvin Gaye 77 single, Gotta Give It Up. We are not the only critics to say that. Virtually every critic in the world has said that. Now comes this twisted legal story. Robin Thicke and his producers, T.I. and Pharrell Williams, are suing the estate of Marvin Gaye to stop them from saying the blurred line sounds a lot like Gotta Give It Up. They're also suing the rights holders for Funkadelic songs, saying don't say that it sounds a lot like uh, Sexy Ways. Boy, talk about confusing. They haven't been sued yet for ripping off these songs. People are just pointing out the similarities, but this is a preemptive lawsuit to stop from getting sued. Here's a quote from the lawyers for Robin Thicke and company. Plaintiffs have the utmost respect for and admiration of Marvin Gaye, Funkadelic, and their musical legacies. They're reluctantly filing this action in the face of multiple adverse claims from alleged successors in interest to those artists. So I guess we have to be careful of of who we compare to whom these days on the show, because maybe it'll result in a mess of lawsuits. Well, there hasn't been a lawsuit filed yet in this One Direction case, Jim, but it got completely out of hand. You know, we got to love social media, right? A critic apparently said that the One Direction song 
Best Song Ever sounded uncannily similar to The Who's Baba O'Reilly, the 1971 classic, basically saying they, they ripped them off. Well, One Direction fans took this several steps further. They got the notion somehow in their heads that the song, best song ever, was going to be banned from the Internet because of what this one <laughs> critic said. and they, I don't they, think that would be a bad idea. They took to their Twitter account by the thousands and basically started issuing death threats and making all sorts of claims about what they were going to do if, if this song by their beloved band was in any way harmed. So much so that Pete Townsend of The Who was moved to respond. And here's what Townsend said. He says, no, I like the single. I like One Direction. The chords I used and the chords they used are the same three chords we've all been using in basic pop music since Buddy Holly, Eddie Cochran, and Chuck Berry made it clear that fancy chords don't mean great music. Not always. I'm still writing songs that sound like Baba O'Reilly, or I'm trying to. So there we have it, Pete Townsend, One Direction fan. in the rain, on my jacket as a cape, and my umbrella as a cane, the richest man rocks the snatchless necklace, spineless bitches in backless dresses, with my feelings on my sleeveless, my weed seedless, my trees leafless, I miss my diagonal grilled cheeses, and back when Mike Jackson was still Jesus, before I believed in not believing in, yeah I ain't hell, who believed in me not breathing in, cigarettes stained smile all covered in sin. My big homie died young, just turned older than him. That is Chance the Rapper with a track from his Acid Rap mixtape, a free mixtape, which we reviewed very favorably on this show a few weeks ago. So it was news to Chance and his team when they saw that very same mixtape show up on the Billboard charts. It actually went to number 63 on the Billboard Top R&B and Hip Hop Albums chart, having sold 1,000 copies in a week. That was bizarre, because as we said, it was free, but somebody has taken that mixtape and put it up for sale and is making money off it. $14.83 per copy. Somebody's out there paying, for, a thousand people paid for more than 14 bucks for a free mixtape. I've never heard of MTC, the company that was allegedly putting out this mixtape. So this has taken us by surprise, said Chance's manager, Patrick Corcoran. But when I first saw it, I showed Chance and his lawyers are trying to stop it. An employee of MTC's distributor, this Houston-based company called One Stop Distribution, confirmed to Billboard magazine that it is indeed selling acid rap, uh, but refused to say where it had obtained the rights to do so. Uh, <laughs> but it just goes to this very murky legal area about these free mixtapes. The Recording Industry Association of America has put its foot down in the past and gotten very litigious about these things. They've stamped out several attempts to put out free mixtapes in the past, saying they intrude on licensing and copyright and all sorts of good things that they try to protect. But artists continue to put them out and have been doing so usually through their websites, allowing their fans to download the music for free. Here we have somebody taking a step further, trying to sell it, and even the artist doesn't like the outcome. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, 
sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis, and that, of course, is Martin Luther King Jr. with his famous speech, his I Have a Dream speech, at the front of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963. We're looking at the 50th anniversary of that great event, not only in the civil rights movement, but I think in black music, African-American music, protest music in this country, a turning point in many ways that has carried on to this day, Jim. The March on Washington in August of 63, hundreds of thousands of African Americans, mostly African Americans, converging there. Some say as high as 300,000, one of the largest gatherings of African Americans in this country's history, to witness a series of speeches by the country's civil rights leaders. But an important component of that event was the music. The soundtrack for the revolution was occurring at the same time as the revolution. The music was its lifeblood, Greg, and we look at this as an historical event now. But I think that, you know, certainly when we hear Dr. King speak, it brings to life the emotion of the moment. But even more so, going back to some of the great civil rights anthems, the songs that inspired the movement, the songs that chronicled it, the songs that talked about the failures, you know, it brings that moment to life. And it still inspires me when I hear this stuff more than half a century later. I think what we saw, especially at that march in 63, was the melding of the gospel and church music that had been so near and dear to African Americans for centuries in this country, meeting the modern folk protest movement. So you had gospel singers Mahalia Jackson and Marian Anderson performing before King's speech. You also had Joan Baez and Bob Dylan up there. It was a a symbolic moment where these movements merged together. And the words that are used for to get the ship on you and you saw a whole new thing sort of coming out of it a new flavor to the type of music gospel melding into soul music into protest music from the folk movement these three areas of music coming together on that particular day I mentioned that Baez and Dylan performed. They were very involved with the civil rights movement. But it was also important that the gospel community be heavily represented because for a long time, the only place in America where African Americans could really speak their mind was in the confines of the church. That's why the the church was so important to the development of that community in this country. They could speak their minds. They could sing what was on their mind. A lot of times the ministers would sing their sermons. Uh, There was a guy, Reverend Clay Evans in Chicago, that would literally sing his sermons. The music was part of the fabric of the service, of the message that was going out to the community. Well, and the enemies of integration thought, that the church was such an important place. There's that horrible incident of the bombing of the 16th Street Church in Mm -hmm. Alabama, one of the key moments in the civil rights movement. The the, the church was a source of the community, and in, in many ways it's impossible to imagine the civil rights movement happening without it. 
And the fact that Mahalia Jackson was there to perform was indeed symbolic. She was the greatest gospel performer of that era. And her performance at the March on Washington of How I Got Over was an important moment for a lot of people who were there because that song had developed iconic status within the black community. It was a gospel song, but at the same time it had a message. It was written by Clara Ward when she and her family were on the road in the early 50s and they got pulled over and basically a chronicle of that that event, how I got over, how I got through this ordeal. We got pulled over by white people whose intention was to harass us, if not possibly kill us, in Mississippi in the early 50s. How are we going to get through this? That song chronicles that moment. So Mahalia Jackson singing that song before King's speech had tremendous resonance with that audience. You know, Greg, you can certainly hear the church in the voice of Mahalia Jackson in that song, How I Got Over. But in addition to gospel, wasn't jazz also integral to the civil rights movement? Weren't weren't the the jazz clubs of the late 50s as important a source of the birth of that movement as the church? Well, jazz was the language of of that community as much as gospel in many ways. And um, the fact that jazz music got political around this time was not lost on many of its listeners. You mentioned the horrible tragedy at the Alabama church in 63, that bombing where four young black girls were killed. John Coltrane doing this evocative tone poem called Alabama about that particular incident. That was not lost on that community. Charles Mingus, one of our favorites, always a very political artist, very outspoken in his interviews, but also in his music. He brought in a lot of gospel music into what he was doing around this period, very specifically because of what was going on in the civil rights area. Now, I'm glad you said that, because a lot of people wouldn't count it, but I think his autobiography, Beneath the Underdog, is one of the great civil rights era books. Oh, Absolutely. And and a, a song, a composition like Fables of Faubus, where he was talking, he name-checked the Arkansas governor, Orville Faubus. That was the guy who ordered the National Guard to prevent those black students from integrating those Little Rock schools. Mm. And Mingus, if you hear this song, you know, it's he puts this little poem in the middle of this yeah. jazz composition where he points the finger at Faubus saying, you're an idiot, basically, yeah. for doing this. Sick and 
then one of the great jazz masterworks of all time, the 1960 album, an album-long cycle about the civil rights movement. We insist Freedom Now Sweet, a jazz masterpiece composed by drummer Max Roach and lyricist Oscar Brown Jr. and sung by Roach's wife at the time, Abby Lincoln. Basically, beginning to end, traces the history of African Americans in this country from the slave and sharecropping days through the civil rights movement and then joins them up with the struggles of the black community back in Africa, particularly South Africa. This is a mind-blowing piece of work in 1960, and Brown's lyrics, very politically oriented, sung with a great deal of passion and emotion by Abby Lincoln. You know, let's take a listen to that first song on the suite, Drive a Man, by Max Roach from 1960's We Insist, here on Sound Opinions. That was Drive a Man by Max Roach with Abby Lincoln on vocals. We're playing songs from the Civil Rights Movement in honor of the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. To share your memories of the music of this era and your thoughts on why music works as a form of protest, leave us a message at 888-859-1800. We'll be back in a minute with more sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. One day we shall overcome. One day we shall overcome. The Lord, one day. Oh, 
Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And in this episode, we've been playing some of the greatest music of the civil rights era. August 28 marks the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington and Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic I Have a Dream speech. But I think it's safe to say, Greg, that for the two of us, the music of that time was as potent as the words. We just played a little bit of Odetta singing I'm On My Way, a song she performed at that Washington, D.C. rally in 63. Odetta is famously referred to by many as the voice of the civil rights movement. But, of course, there were a lot of voices, including the Freedom Singers. That's right. So the story of the Freedom Singers, in 62, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee set up the Freedom Singers, basically to spread the message of nonviolence nationwide. Bernice Johnson, Rutha Harris, Charles Neblett, Cordell Hull Reagan, they were already part of the movement. And they also happened to be great singers steeped in gospel church music. And in 62-63, I mean, they traveled around the country. I mean, we're talking about 100,000 miles they put in on the road, singing at rallies, singing at marches. They put their lives on the line in a lot of ways. Neblett, for example, talks about being thrown in jail numerous times, getting beaten up, being tear-gassed. The music was integral to the marches. It was like they were stealing the soldiers for battle. Songs gave you the courage to go through that phalanx of police clubs and dogs and, and the tear fire gas. Hoses, yeah. You know, it was it was a tough duty that these people had. When you have Mahalia and Odetta appearing at you know as part of King's March on Washington in, in August of sixty three, you also had the Freedom Singers as part of that. And they were also invited to the Newport Folk Festival in Rhode Island a few weeks earlier. Again, another important event in that summer of sixty three where you saw Dylan Joan Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary, the staple singers, joining up with the merger of the gospel and the folk movements. And right at the center of it, you had the freedom singers. They adapted a lot of the old spirituals and gospel songs for the movement, changed the lyrics to adapt them to what the needs were of that particular day or or of that particular rally. So you had songs like This Little Light and Will the Circle Being Unbroken, But also original songwriting as well factored into it. One of the great songs that came out of that era was written by a composer named Marshall Jones, and it was sung by the Freedom Singers. It's called In the Mississippi River. It basically talks about that summer of 64 
in Mississippi where they were searching. Remember the great search for those three missing civil rights workers? You right. know, they went down there to work on the, the Voting Rights Act and, and to sort of expand the rights of black people in Mississippi. They went missing. They started trolling the Mississippi River for their bodies. While they were searching for these three civil rights workers, they pulled up numerous bodies of African-Americans who had been lynched, shot, mutilated, and dumped in the river. So it became this, like, national atrocity. All the media was down there. All the big networks were down there documenting what was going on. And uh, Marshall Jones wrote this song to bear witness to what was going on there. It's called In the Mississippi River, recorded in 1965 by the Freedom Singers on Sound Opinions. Come live one by one. It could be your son. Come them a two by two. It could be me or you. Come them a three by three. Do you wanna see? Come them a four by four. Oh well, uh, into the river they go. Oh well, uh, into the river they go. And you can count. Them a five by five with their hands, and they by. don't come out alive. And their feet, and tied. you can count them a six by six. Throughout the bar. in Mississippi, they've got it fixed like good, and you can count them a seven by seven like squirt. The Mississippi River sure ain't a heaven chain, and you can count them a eight by eight. And we are thrown in because of the pages. And you can count them on that. I'm a tiny happy river. Mississippi, this ain't no crime. And you can count them a timber chain. And we wonder when the right will win. Incredibly powerful stuff in the Mississippi River from the Freedom Singers. Greg, we've mentioned a couple times already the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, and you mentioned uh, Medgar Evers, one of the three activists who went missing, later found in Mississippi. That wasn't the only great song inspired by those incidents. Nina Simone would later say her entire career was derailed by one song, Mississippi Goddamn, an incredibly powerful song that was first released on a live album, Nina Simone in Concert, recorded at Carnegie Hall, of all places, in 1964. I can think of few in the history of popular music that are more powerful than this tune. It is expressing her anger at Birmingham and at the Mississippi killings. She says it point blank. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. I mean every word of it. Alabama's gotten me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest, and everybody knows about Mississippi. Goddamn. 
You know, the demands she's making are fairly reasonable. All I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. But the anger rises in a way that, you know, Dr. King was preaching nonviolence, following in the footsteps of Mahatma Gandhi. But people were angry, and I think the music was a safe place to let it out. You know, we had to stand arm in arm and be peaceful in the famous marches. And, and this song was one that Simone sang at one of those huge marches from Selma to Montgomery. But, you know, the music was was where you could really let it all hang out. And you can hear the bile raising. Oh, but this whole country is full of lies. You're all going to die and die like flies, unless, of course, you change these horrible ways. I mean, it's an incredible piece of music. Nina Simone with Mississippi Goddamn on Sound Opinions. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi. God damn. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about pressure much longer somebody say a prayer Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest and everybody knows about Mississippi God damn this is a show tune but the show hasn't been written for it yet Dogs on my trail, school children sitting in jail, black cat cross my path. I think every day is gonna be my last. Lord have mercy on this land of mine. We all gonna get it in due time. I don't belong here, I don't belong there. I've even stopped believing in prayer. Just about do. I've been there, so I know. Keep on saying, go slow. Well, that's just the trouble. Washing the windows, picking the cotton. You're just plain rotten. Nina Simone with Mississippi Goddamn from that 1964 concert at Carnegie Hall. I'm Jim Deergottis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and we're talking about the music of the civil rights movement upon the anniversary of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. 
I mentioned that Nina Simone would also perform that song at another historic rally at the end of one of the marches from Selma to Montgomery in 1965. But before we talk about those marches, let's stay in 64, Greg. It's an important year for the music and the movement. There's no doubt it was, Jim. You know, Simone, what an incredible version of that song, first of all. I mean, I love it. In the middle of it, she's still got this sort of wicked humor. That it's, it's a show tune, but the show hasn't been written yet. 64 was an important year. A lot of artists started stepping up and performing songs like this, not only performing them, but radio stations were playing them. These were hits, and I think that's an important distinction. You know, you heard gospel music in the, in the black churches, in the black community, but you weren't hearing it sort of spread across the nation where everybody was hearing it, and that's exactly what was happening in the 60s when the civil rights movement started to flourish. Here in Chicago, WVON was a new station with an all-black programming staff and playing largely, although not solely, black music. Let's bring in one of its disc jockeys, the great Herb Kent. Herb, it's an honor to have you here. Thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Hey, I like that word, great. <laughs> you are still the cool gent, Herb. <laughs> Thank you, and i got to say, I sharpen my teeth here at uh, WBEZ. It's ruined That's... many a fine young lad. <laughs> yeah, it's ruined a lot of lives. <laughs> So, Herb, you were DJing yes. during this era that we're talking about, 63 in particular, but the, mm-hmm. the 60s in general. When you started to hear the voice not only of great African-American music, but protests, mm-hmm. and, and the voice of social consciousness starting mm-hmm. to creep in, mm-hmm. you know, did you notice this change as a DJ, and how, how difficult was it for you to start playing songs with political content as opposed to just you know, straight-up love songs or, or, or ballads. Oh, it was, it was easy. Uh, WVON, we were right in the heart of everything. Right on to Herb Kent and WVON. Herb Kent! That's me, baby. I'm a Libra disc jockey. It was in the air. Recording. I like to lay it, it, on was, until it wasn't like it came out of mm-hmm. that field because sure. this thing had been growing for a long time. WVON, uh, well, at first it was called The Voice of the Negro, uh, but no one liked the term Negro. But it really it was the voice of uh, black people. Leonard Chess had the foresight to make sure that we mirrored everything that happened. Mm. And I remember all the DJs were invited out to uh, different protest meetings, different. There were a lot of civil rights leaders back in the day. Yeah. For the first time, black people got together and got to realize that together they could get a lot of things done. Herb, tell us about when Dr. King was shot in 1968. You took to the air trying to calm people in Chicago because people were ready to, to riot. People were ready to raise Well, up. that's something else that we did. We, we devoted a couple of days. Radio, as you know, is a powerful force. We took the disc jockeys who worked like six-hour shifts, one after the other, and we, we didn't play any music. All we did was, please don't tear your neighborhood up because the riots had started yeah. and stuff. And uh, VOM was instrumental, I think, in, in really quelling the riot. Uh, it, it could have been a lot worse. We went out, talked to people in the park, different places, talked on the radio, not, like I say, nonstop, and had folks call in. We had everybody call in. Uh, the mayor called in, the Blackstone Rangers called in, chief of police called in, because yeah. it's a powerful voice yeah. to express their opinion. And the whole thing was that please don't destroy your own home because that doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, let's try to negotiate out of this thing. 
Well, well, it's interesting, Herb, because yes. I think the DJs at the radio station served a similar role in people's lives, uh, especially in the black community, that the ministers did in the churches. I mean, people, when they yeah. weren't in church, they were listening to the DJs, and they I were listening to the music that, that way, they played. But you're right, you know, because we could say, well, go meet Butterball in front of DuSable High School, and about eight or 900 people would be there. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it, was, it was very powerful. So if you played a record... You know, that was kind of like the Herb Kent stamp of approval. This is something you need to hear. It was a number one. (laughs) (laughs) That was Herb Kent, an urban radio pioneer, talking to us on Sound Opinions. Greg, we don't always hear political songs on the radio these days, but in the 60s, you got these messages of protest and power on the stations playing the hits. Sam Cooke is a really good example of this kind of crossover artist who lent credibility to the movement and the style of music that accompanied it. Absolutely. I mean, Cooke was this terrific singer, velvet voiced, very suave, smooth kind of guy out of the south side of Chicago who transitioned from gospel music into pop. And when he went pop, he lost a little bit of the edge in his voice. He sort of smoothed it out. He became this kind of congenial party guy. But in 63, we mentioned the importance of Dylan as part of this nexus of gospel and folk and protest music. The song Blowing in the Wind, no matter what you think of it as a song, it had tremendous resonance in those years. And it struck Sam Cooke. He would, he would listen to that song over and over again, and he was struck. How could this kid from northern Minnesota know how I feel? He seems to be expressing it exactly the way I feel in this song. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? Cook is going, man, if he can do it, I've got to step up to the plate too. I've got to write something (laughs) as good as this. So he spent a year basically working on a song called A Change Is Gonna Come. Started working on it in 63. He died in late 64, tragic death. Some people call it a murder. He was shot to death at a hotel. There was another woman involved. It was a big scandal in the African-American community. But the song that he had been working on so carefully for over a year finally came out soon after his death. A Change Is Gonna Come is definitely a change in the way Sam Cooke approached music. There's an edge to his voice that we hadn't heard before in his pop material and, and a plea for understanding. You know, the song's narrator is talking about, I'm asking my brother for help, but he winds up knocking me back down to my knees. Cook had never done anything quite like it. There was a sense that this was the direction he might have moved in had he lived, but he left behind this amazing piece of protest music. A Change is Gonna Come was considered a huge risk in his career. That's why he was spending so long working on it. He wanted to make sure it got exactly right. And even then, his record company only released it as a B-side to a typical Sam Cooke single called Shake. But on its own right, DJ started flipping the single over and playing A Change is Gonna Come. And it, it in itself became a top 40 single. Sam Cooke with A Change is Gonna Come on Sound Opinions. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know A change gonna come Oh, yes it will It's been too hard 
going to come from the late great Sam Cooke, a huge hit in 1964, as you said, Greg. We're going to play the other song that ruled the airwaves and brought the civil rights movement into the pop charts when we come back on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. children, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, yeah, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, I let it shine, let it shine to show my love. I'm gonna tell you that everywhere I go. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. We're wrapping up our special celebration of the great protest music of the civil rights era. This month, of course, marks the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech and the March on Washington. But as we've been saying, music made as much of an impact and brought about as much change as did the speeches and the marches. Before we went to the break, we talked about these protest songs breaching the tops of the pop charts. A Change is Gonna Come is a great example, but the other big one, Keep On Pushing by The Impressions. You know, Curtis Mayfield is one of the great underheralded geniuses in American music. People remember him primarily for Superfly these days, I think, but with The Impressions and then as a solo artist, his work was so soulful, so emotional, and yet so spot-on politically. With Keep On Pushing, he was saying, 
we're making strides. And in 64, the civil rights movement was beginning to make strides. But he said, we can't get comfortable. I'll admit, you know, I lost it the night that Barack Obama, a senator from Chicago, who I'd met once, speaks at the Democratic National Convention. It is his big debut on stage in 2004. And they usher him out with that that song, you know. I mean, what a moment in American history. Keep on pushing by the impressions from 64. the impressions with their 1964 hit, Keep On Pushing. Now, you'd mentioned earlier the Selma to Montgomery march. That was an important moment in the civil rights movement, March of 65. There were those who said that we would get here only over their dead bodies. All the world today knows that we are here and we are standing before the forces of power in the state of Alabama saying we ain't going to let nobody turn us around. What happened here was there was a civil rights worker named Jimmy Lee Jackson who was killed at a protest in Marion, Alabama. And a week later, on March 5th, 600 marchers attempted to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma on their way to uh, Montgomery to protest this, this killing. The marchers never got across that bridge. They were attacked by police who were armed with clubs, dogs, tear gas. That was known as Bloody Sunday in the civil rights movement. The, the carnage was just incredible. The future congressman, John Lewis, was part of that march. He suffered a fractured skull. They attempted this march again, and uh, finally in, on March 25th, 25,000 protesters strong, managed to get from Selma to Montgomery, where Martin Luther King spoke yet again. The Staple Singers by then were a world-famous group. They were touring not only the States, but over in Europe, out of Chicago. They were part of the movement. They had met King a couple of years earlier. They were already part of his rallies. Many of his speeches included music by the Staple Singers. Pop Staples, the, the patriarch of the family, was a very interested observer. He wrote the song Freedom Highway specifically for this moment in our country's history. There is a fantastic live recording of the Staple Singers from 1965 called, in fact, Freedom Highway. 
Billy Sherrill, the Epic Records producer who was working with the group at the time, flew into Chicago. They set up shop at a church, New Nazareth Church, on the south side of Chicago on 79th Street. Mm. You know, the idea was Billy Sherrill, great producer, was going to capture the Staple Singers in their environment, in their element, in front of a church audience performing material that uh, certainly had the gospel base, but was saying a lot more than just like, you know, we're going to wait till we get to heaven to get our reward. No, Pop Staples was advocating, we deserve some kind of reward down here on earth as well. This was a great moment in the Staple Singer's career. You had uh, Pops on vocals, as well as his daughters, Mavis and Cleotha, as well as Purvis Staples. But you had this great band behind them, Al Duncan on drums and Phil Upchurch on bass. It was a power trio with Mm -hmm. pops on guitar. Mm -hmm. They were really laying it down. And you can hear the fire in the voices and in the congregation greeting that energy on uh, Freedom Highway from 1965. It's the Staple Singers on Sound Opinions. Sound to Montgomery, Alabama. I know some of you know about that. (laughs) That was in March 1965. And from that March, words were revealed. And a song was composed. And we wrote a song about the freedom marches. And we call it the Freedom Highway. And we dedicate this number to all or the freedom marches. And it goes something like this. was a staple singers performing Freedom Highway in 1965. I want to jump ahead a few years here to sort of bring this whole discussion full circle, Jim. And that was the Watt Stacks concert in Los Angeles in 1972, which kind of brings the era to a close in some ways. The largest gathering of African Americans since the March on Washington at that Watt Stacks concert. More than 100,000 people to see this performance by the artists on the Memphis-based Stacks Records label. 
And the whole day kicks off with a powerhouse performance by one of the Stax Records vocalists, Kim Weston, on the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. Uh, it was described by Jesse Jackson, who introduced Weston, as the black national anthem, and had mm. really taken over as the song for the black power movement of the late 60s and early 70s. It was a turn-of-the-century poem that had been turned into music and been passed along through the decades, and Weston just really took it to church on that day in 1972 in Los Angeles. Mr. Kim Weston, the Black National Anthem. That's a little bit of Kim Weston performing the Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice, and Sing at the Watts Stacks concert in 72. That's our take on the civil rights music, but we want to hear from you. What are your memories of the music of this historic period? And do you think any songs today match it in the power of protest? Call 888-859-1800. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, the Sound Opinions World Tour makes its next stop in South Africa. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Megan Murphy is our intern. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. And one last bit of music news, Greg, in case you're in the market. Rapper Coolio is selling the rights to all of his music so he can start a new career as a chef. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Just look into my eyes. I'll be there to make you feel right. If you're feeling sorry and sad, 
I'd really sympathize Don't you be sad, just call me tonight New messages Hello, gentlemen. This is Luis from Bloomington, Indiana, calling. I just finished listening to the podcast on the instrumentals, and I just want to call it a great show, especially here towards the end of the summer to hear some of the uh, great musicians that are out there and across the decades. I totally agree with Dick Dale as being one of the best guitarists there ever was. And my favorite track of his is actually a remake that he did of the song Pipeline, he redid it as a duet, so to speak, with Stevie Ray Vaughan for a really cheesy movie from the 80s called Back to the Beach, which was kind of a send-up of the old Frankie and Annette beach movies, uh, which actually starred Frankie and Annette. And I think really the claim to fame of that movie was the soundtrack. And Dick Dale and Stevie Ray Vaughan's version of Pipeline on that is just unbelievable. You can really hear the two different guitar styles trading those guitar licks back and forth. It's kind of a tough one to find, but it's definitely worth searching out and taking a listen to. Uh, keep up the good work. Great show, and I'll keep listening. Thanks. My name is Michael Fleming, calling from Sacramento, California. I wanted to call in about the instrumental show. I wanted to call in now and feel like you really missed the ball on a few different songs. One is you played Link Ray, but you didn't play Rumble, a song that was banned on, in certain radio stations. It doesn't even have words. Unbelievable. And the last one is got to be considered one of the greatest instrumentals in rock history. And that would be Jimi Hendrix playing the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. It redefines how we all look at the Star Spangled Banner. It defined a cultural phenomenon. Show. Sorry you missed out on these ones. Thank you very much. Oh, no, oh, no, the sun is hot. Come. Hi, this is Kathy calling from Portland, Oregon. And I just finished listening to your show with Josh Homme. And it reminded me how great the Queens of the Stone Age album, Songs for the Deaf, is. It's one of those albums that I listened to through the years, even when my musical taste has mellowed a bit. It just seems to flow really well. The songs are great. Dave Grohl's drumming is absolutely amazing. And Mosquito Song is one of the beautiful, haunting songs I think I've ever heard. Thanks for a great show. 
Bye. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.